Weddings are awesome. I mean, yes, it's my personal opinion, but I've just got to say, I think weddings are some of the most amazing ceremonies ever invented by the human race, ever. I mean, the basic idea that someone wants to marry and spend the rest of their life with someone else, that's a thing. It's a cause for celebration. Yes, I'm admitting it. I'm a bit of a romantic softie. But weddings are more than that. They're amazing social events that no matter what time, place and culture you're in, they're just a general excuse, on the whole, to have a good time. They become ceremonies which allow people to show off, and people often show off at their weddings. You get to meet your neighbours at a wedding sometimes, or maybe you get to meet total strangers. People gather from all over to attend a wedding. And there are certain things that always seem to happen at weddings. In my family's case, it usually is a fight, to be honest. But what I've also found always seems to happen at weddings is that people talk. They talk about their lives and they talk about the lives of their friends and their jobs. They talk about their world and the world beyond the wedding ceremony. They talk about the news and how they feel about it. They become immense social gatherings. And way back in the year 1042, there was a wedding in Lambeth. And it was kind of just as I described it. It was a wedding that was a huge social gathering with lots of people from London there. And they would have talked about their world and they would have also talked about the highest ranked person in the room. Because one of the guests at that wedding was the then King of England. And he was about to upstage the bride, the groom, and the rest of the feast in the most spectacular way possible. He was about to die during the wedding. Hi, my name is Saul, and this is The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the tale of London as a single linear story. Each chapter, while self-contained, also takes us one step along the narrative, trying to explain what London faced as time passed, from the point of view, if possible, of the city itself. It's a podcast about how the city evolved, adapted and changed over the centuries. And we have reached round about the year 1040. And this chapter, we're going to talk about the wider geopolitical events that were going on in England at the time. But it's also a podcast episode about the gossip of London. Not juicy gossip, fairly mundane stuff. The kind of chat you'd have with your neighbour about the guy who lives down the road, say. But I find it fascinating. And it's a wonderful backdoor to what was going on during this momentous time. So welcome then to chapter 39 of our tale, The Red Wedding of Lambeth. (laughs) 
So we're at a wedding here in the 1040s in London, but what kind of wedding are we talking about here? Well, it's an Anglo-Scandinavian one. The courtly rituals that had so dominated England, that mixture of Anglo and Scandinavian tradition, they'd still be very much in vogue. Now, we can't say for sure exactly what the ceremony would have been like. There's an awful lot of material out there about, you know, Viking weddings, but most of that is constructed for a modern multi-million pound industry that charges people an awful lot for authentic Viking experiences on their wedding days. The things we can be sure, it was taking place on a Wednesday. It was probably a multi-day affair with both families showing off their wealth by having a heck of a feast and yeah, pretty sure the feast could have well lasted more than just a day. And there probably was copious amounts of food and lots of drinking and lots of dancing and lots of singing. Uh, would have been a hot mid-June late afternoon, maybe going into the evening. And the guests are mostly the great and good of the nation. This is a high profile wedding. So who is the groom here in Lambeth? His name is Tovi Pruder. Now, I've read it written as Tofi or Tofig, but generally it's Tovi. Tovi Pruder. Tovi the Proud. Now, Tovi isn't a nobody. He is a somebody. He is somebody important. And that's why the wedding taking place here in Lambeth isn't a small thing. Everyone in London would probably know that Tovi Pruder was getting married. Now, this was his second marriage, his first wife having passed at some point in the years previous. Where does Tovi Pruder come from? Well, we're not sure exactly. We do know he's Danish, but whereabouts in Denmark, nobody's been able to pin down. The way we figure it is he probably sailed over to England around 25 years earlier to this wedding. So they're fairly sure he came over with Canute, when he invaded, always one of the first batch to come over soon after Canute had taken England. Now, there is some theories that he originally sailed over in the service of Thorkild at all. We're not too sure if he was, and the reason why the connection is made is Tovi first makes a name for himself in the year 1017, which is the same year that Thorkill was made the Earl of East Anglia. He'd been made Earl of that region because it had been especially resistant to Canute's takeover, so he was in charge of pacifying it. And he took control in 1017. And in that same year, Tovi Pruder was named the Lord of Reading. So maybe he was part of Thorkill's people, or maybe he was just getting some land, or, getting control of Reading as part of the general divvy up by Canute after he took over. Personally, I don't think Tovi Pruder was part of Thorkill's crew, because Thorkill, if you can remember from previous episodes, was exiled around 1023 and ended up in Denmark for a few years before he was killed. Tovi, he stayed put. And over the 1020s and into 1030, he grew in importance and position at the court of King Canute, and by 1030, he had reached remarkably high indeed, without necessarily reaching high in rank. The absolute top of the pyramid of power in England was the king, always. Canute was that kind of ruler. 
and just below him in terms of prestige and influence was probably his queen Emma of Normandy. Now just below the king and queen came a specific rank of nobles, the Earls of England. But not all earls are created equally. At the very, very top of their own little pyramid was the Earl of Wessex, Godwin. And his main rival was Leofric, the Earl of Mercia. Just below them you had Earl Seward of Northumbria, who had originated in Denmark and basically ran the north for Canute. However, below them there existed a class of people who may not have had the rank, but certainly had the influence and they were nearly all Scandinavian. They were Canute's Huskarls, his herd, his inner core of advisors. They were the men who protected Canute, his bodyguards, but they did more than that. They were his messengers, his courtiers, his trusted advisors. And Tovi Pruder was one of them, and he became a crucial one of them. Tovi Pruder was said to be Canute's standard bearer, his most trusted companion, and more. Sources at the time said in the latter stages of Canute's reign, Tovi Pruder, quote, was guiding the monarch, unquote, and, quote, closest to the king in his councils, unquote. Indeed, if you look at the list of the Huskarls, then there you see names of men called Hesting and Torga, Hilden, Thurston, Thrum and Thorkil Horga, you, you get a list of 31 men, and at the very top they were led by two men, one of which was Tovi Pruder. Now by the 1030s, so about seven years or so before he gets married, he's still fit enough to be travelling the country on behalf of Canute. But the Waltham Chronicle said that he was at this point, quote, old and feeble, unquote, which I think is a bit harsh. Based on everything, I think Tovey was in his mid-40s by then, which means that at his wedding in 1042, Tovey Pruder was in his late 40s or early 50s at the latest. But the self-same Waltham Chronicle also said that Tovey was, quote, a man of great wealth, unquote which he had acquired not only through the king's largesse, but also because his relationship with the king had enabled him, quote, to benefit or harm anyone he wished, unquote. So you see, Tovi Pruder had been, when King Canute was alive, one heck of a big deal. He was the kind of man you did not cross. He was the kind of man you cultivated friendship from. Older, richer, connected, he was a made guy, and as such he held a bunch of important jobs and land in areas as diverse as East Anglia, Essex and London. He was a manifestation of the status quo. And this is kind of the reason why in 1042 he had such a big wedding, because Tovey's fortunes had just changed for the better. Because immediately after Canute had died, his luck had turned bad. You see, when Canute had died, Tovey Pruder, the standard bearer, was in Winchester, we assume, and was probably associated with his king's widow, Queen Emma, 
and the likes of Earl Godwin, the Earl of Wessex, and that bunch had all picked Canute and Emma's son to be king, Hartha Canute. But Hartha Canute was over in Denmark, and everyone else in England, they decided to pick Canute's second son by Elfgifu, Harold Harefoot, to become the king. Now, Harold sent men to seize the royal treasury in Winchester. After all, the royal treasury belongs to the king. And I think most in England thought at this point there would be some kind of armed confrontation. But Harold, as I said in the previous chapter, played it very smart. He sent his men to take the cash, but left Queen Emma in place. So Tovey and the Huskals couldn't really fight for anyone. So the event passed without incident. Eventually, Emma got exiled. And Tovey, he lost all his clout. Harold had inherited the kingdom of Canute, but it also inherited his father's ruling class. And he had no incentive or real power to rock the boat. None of the nobles of England, even the ones who were opposed to him, were purged or arrested or anything, with the exception of Emma and, well, the Huskals who used to serve Canute and seemed to have been serving Emma. Harold didn't send them on exile, but he clearly had no need for them. So Tovey Pruder was out of prestige, if not out of power. Perhaps it's time for him to retire to his estates and settle down. But then his luck had changed. And here we are, two years later, and he's getting married. And he's getting married to a woman called Gaitha. Now, she appears to be younger than him, and to be honest, there's probably two reasons for that. One, older and richer men for their second wedding tend to want younger and prettier trophy wives. But the main reason that Githa was marrying Tovey Pruder, well, that was down to her father. He was an old friend of Tovey's. His name is Osgood Clapper. Now, Osgood, or Osgood, was born and raised in England, but he came out of the Dane law. We don't know where, some people think it was East Anglia or a region nearby. He'd grown up as an Anglo-Dane and had been one of those natives of this island who had been delighted when Canute had taken over. He had certainly sought to serve the Danish king and he'd risen in rank at the same time and in the same circles as Tovey Pruder. Osgood eventually became Canute's Master of Palace, a, a major domo role. And when I mentioned the 31 men in Canute's Huskals who were led by Tovey Pruder, the other man who led them, Osgood Clapper. Like Tovey, Osgood lost his status in the new court of King Harold. Like Tovey Pruder, they had been identified with the old regime. Still, that was all that happened. They weren't persecuted, they'd just lost their clout. Because King Harold of England, Harold Harefoot, he generally tried to run things quietly. He didn't try to cause any big changes. He was a unifier. And proof of how popular that was lay in the fact that the fleet of London, his father's fleet, had picked him to be their commander. But he only lasted a few years before Harold Harefoot died. Now, no, we don't know exactly what killed Harold Harefoot. 
the church records in Oxford said in the weeks leading up to his death he was, quote, so very sick that he lay in despair of his life, unquote. And it says that his skin, quote, turned quite black, unquote, before on March 17th of the year 1040, King Harold of England died. He was only 24. What's also unusual about his death is that he was buried in London. And why is that unusual? Well, traditionally at this point, most kings of England, including his father, had been buried in Winchester. And yes, Edmund I, King Edgar and Edmund II had been buried in Glastonbury Abbey. Yes? So why did the powers that be move Harold's body the 60 or so miles from Oxford and laid him to rest in St. Peter's Monastery over on Thorny Island, the, the area that would become known as Westminster and Westminster Abbey. Well, for me, the most likely theory is where a monarch was buried said a lot about how they wished to be remembered. Take Canute, for example. He spent his entire adult life trying to prove he was a legitimate English king after he took over in the year 1016. So when he dies, he wants to be buried in Winchester, the traditional location of the West Saxon kings. On the other hand, his father, Sven Forkbeard, supposedly wished to be buried in Denmark rather than England because he knew he was hated by the English, right? Now, perhaps King Harold just wished to be buried someplace where he could be remembered fondly rather than hatefully, which meant he couldn't really be buried anywhere in Wessex, that was just out. They were totally hostile to him. He could have perhaps chosen some of the Mercian centres, but there hadn't been a king in Mercia for hundreds of years. Mercia as a political state had ceased to exist. It was just a region of England now, and none of the centres would have been suitable. In fact, there were only three elite centres King Harold I could have been buried in at this point. Oxford, Canterbury, and London. Oxford actually wasn't prestigious enough. Canterbury was, but it was hostile towards him. So that just meant that the only place Harold I could have been buried was London. Now, King Harold was not the first monarch to be interned in London, technically. And in fact, he was the third. Now, the first had been uh, buried in St. Paul's about three, 300 years beforehand. St. Sebai had been buried there. And then, only a few years previously, Ethelred Unred had also been buried in St. Paul's. So St. Paul's seemed to be the place where kings got buried, right? So why did Harold not get buried in St. Paul's? Well, that ties into family history. See, Ethelred and his family had they'd mutilated and attacked the Mercian family that uh, Harold's mother, Elfgifu, had descended from, all the way back in 1006. The act was carried out by Edric Strayona on the king's behalf. So, you know, burying Harold near to the tomb of the man who had mutilated his ancestors maybe wasn't a good idea. So Harold ended up being buried in the monastery on Thorny Island, St. Peter's Monastery, eventually Westminster Abbey. And that was good because it was near one of the royal households constructed by Canute, so this was a prestigious place. Be that as it may, 1040, King
King Harold dies, and Hartha Canute takes over. Now, while Hartha Canute had been technically invited to take the throne, there is every reason to suspect he didn't see it that way. I mean, he was turning up with 61 ships. That's an invasion. And you can kind of understand why he would see he needed it. His mother had been driven off into exile. His half-brother, Eilfred, who, to be honest, he'd never met and probably would have jailed if he did meet, but he'd been mutilated and killed, and England had sided with his other half-brother, Harold. So he and his 61 ships worth of men turned up possibly expecting a fight. Luckily, there wasn't any. There was no other serious candidate. The problem was, he is now the successor and inheritor of the empire of King Canute. Like his father, he could have built up a huge conglomerate polity, able to capitalise upon the wealthy nation-state cornerstone that was England. But while Canute had been a great strategist, a geopolitical visionary with an acute understanding of power, Arthur Canute was... Well, he comes across as an angry young man. A angry, distrustful and bitter young man. Hartha Canute never sees the big picture, never understands power and never makes any attempt to read people. Take his policy on taxation. England had at this point one of the most advanced monetary systems in Europe. In fact, its system was so advanced it had been exported to Denmark by his father. Ran prudently, it would have given Hartha Canute a stable economic base to allow him afford steady growth in military power and economic power. Hartha Canute just saw it as a cash cow. So when he became king, he'd wanted to reward his army in those 61 ships. So he immediately levied a huge geld to pay for it. This was a massive amount of tax, which a nation had to cough up or else. So they did, but they hadn't seen anything like this since the reign of Ethelred. And even then, Hartha Canute didn't feel secure. Remember, he had inherited a fleet kept in London of 40 manned ships to do whatever he wanted. And that was not enough for Hartha Canute. He expanded that fleet to at least 94 ships, which actually sounds like he combined his invasion force with the existing London fleet. So there's roughly 100 ships now based in London. And at the time, English ships generally had a crew of about 80 men per ship. So we're talking a possible force of about 8,000 men, thereabouts, in and around South London. That's a massive fleet. But it would have done two things. One, it would have caused a huge surge in the Anglo-Scandinavian population of London. And two, it would have cost a lot of money for its upkeep. A huge amount of taxation. And Hartha Canute simply demanded it and used his force to go out and take it. This eventually led to major rebellions across the country, including the whole of Worcester basically rebelling against Hartha Canute. But for me, the ultimate proof that all Hartha Canute ever was, really, was an angry young man, is exposed with what he did when he turned up at his father's hall on Thorny Island. See, when he got there, 
he summoned the entire royal council of the late King Harold. So we're talking the Archbishop of York, Ealfric. We're talking Earl Godwin of Wessex. We're talking Steer, who was Harold's master of the household. Harold Stewart, a guy called Edric. Harold's executioner, a man called Thrond, and a whole bunch of others. Anybody who had helped King Harold run the country for the last two years. And then he ordered them to leave the royal hall, walk across to the monastery, dig up Harold's body, where it had just been buried, and dump it in a sewer. Now, when I say sewer, we're not talking an actual sewer. Now, all this action is taking place on Thorny Island, which is a small island separated from the land by the Thames on one side and the River Tyburn on the other two sides. So, the chances are the monks who lived in the monastery, plus the servants and residents of the royal household that Canute had built, would probably have gone the toilet into buckets, and the buckets would have been dumped nearby, say, on the banks of the River Tyburn. Hence why I believe that what Arthur Canute ordered was that King Harold's closest advisers go, disinter the body, take it and dump it on the banks of the River Tyburn, where the newer monks traditionally on toilet duty would dump the crap. Now, there are rumours that apparently some of the fleet of London felt that this treatment of Harold was unjust. And so apparently they had sailed down in secret, rescued the body and buried him in a local parish church. Be that as it may, that's the kind of guy Harthur Canute was. He was that petty, but he was also greedy. He organised a show trial over the blinding of his half-brother Eilfred and Earl Godwin had showed up and simply bribed his way out of it. Earl Godwin had carried out the act, but he got out of it with a big bribe. Records at the time said he bribed Harthur Canute with a glorious ship bedecked in gold and the finest weapons. But please note, a few years later, when Edward the Confessor takes the throne, Godwin gives him an identical ship. So either Godwin's just giving away gold-plated ships twice within 10 years, or he only gave one. That was to Edward, and, you know, the scribe just got the two mixed up. The point I'm trying to make, however, is that Harthur Canute is isolated. He was disliked by a lot of people. He was antagonistic towards many of the people who had supported Harold, and he was antagonistic towards many of the people who had previously supported him. I mean, who can Arthur Canute trust? Well, he can trust his mother, Queen Emma. And who can she trust? Well, it was clear that she began to trust those who had stood by her in the past. Which means, guess who's back in with the authorities? That's right, Osgood Clapper and Tovey Pruder. Arthur Canute is bringing back his father's old loyalists to help him run the country. And I mean, it's not just them. Up north, Earl Seward of Northumbria, he'd been one of Canute's loyal men, and Arthur Canute had either allowed him or ordered him to kill the Earl of Benicia and consolidate the lands up there, which was causing instability in Northumbria. But we're now able to go full circle and come back to this wedding in Lambeth. Osgood... Clapper and Tovey Pruder 
are back in with the regime. They were loyalists to the new king's father, and now they're back in positions of authority. So why not cement the change in fortune by marrying Osgood's daughter Githa off to his old friend Tovi? Unite the family, show faith in the future. This wasn't just a wedding celebration. It was a proper pro-regime celebration. And guess what? The king attended. Of course he did. Why wouldn't he? These were his men, loyalists who had served his father. So he showed up to show how connected Tovi and Osgood were. And why were they in Lambeth? Well, it was perfect. Just north of here was Southwark, where there were up to 8,000 of his armed men ready to defend him. And just across the river from here was his father's hall, where Canute had lived and was where Arthur Canute liked to base himself when he was in London. So Lambeth would have been a perfect place for the second wedding of Tovey Pruder. But just before we carry on with what happened at the wedding, there was just one last complication in this story going on. One last wrinkle in the celebration of Osgood and Tovey. You see, Arthur Canute was clearly not liked by many. He ruled imperially, but he was no empire builder. His mother, Dowager Queen Emma, was wielding influence now on the third out of four last kings of England. And for the likes of Earl Godwin and others, this did not bode well. Emma was by now probably convinced Godwin had betrayed her over the mutilation of her son, Ealfred, and his days were numbered. As such, Godwin and a whole bunch of nobles in England needed a trump card to play, something to give them some wriggle room with half a canute. That trump card was the last surviving son of the late King Ethelred of England and Dowager Queen Emma, Edward Etheling, a.k.a. Edward of England. He was in exile in Normandy, and Normandy was right now a complete mess, tearing itself apart with civil war. And while the exact sequence of events which follows are quite debated, what we're fairly sure happened is that Godwin and other nobles invited Edward to come to England to help Arthur Canute run the place. So Edward had turned up with a small retinue of Norman bodyguards, sorry, sorry, retainers, of course. They're not bodyguards, there's no danger here. Technically, this may qualify as the third Norman invasion in 12 years. But even if it doesn't, it was presented to Arthur Canute and Emma as a fate accompli. Earl Godwin and the others basically saying, look who's here to help you, your majesties. And everyone is overjoyed he's arrived. Now, if you read the accounts of the Queen of what immediately followed, you get the idea and the impression that Arthur Canute and Emma were delighted Edward had joined them and that there were no rows between any of them and they all agreed to work together for the good of the land, a queen and her two kingly sons. My honest take? Both of them were furious. I believe Emma in particular was probably spitting mad. 
Would it have lasted? I don't think so. Given Hatha Canute's predisposition towards dictatorship and the huge force of men at his disposal, I think it was only a matter of time before he would have ordered his army to make a move on his half-brother and in time on those who supported him. So basically, Godwin of Wessex. But that was the background to this wedding. That was the thing in everybody's head as Tovi Pruder got married to Githa Osgood Dottier. And it was what was going on in everyone's mind as people drank and sang a few songs and had some food. And the entry for the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle for the year 1042 says, quote, This year died King Harthur Canute at Lambeth as he stood drinking. He fell suddenly to the earth with a tremendous struggle, but those who were nigh at hand took him up, and he spoke not a word afterwards, but expired on the sixth day before the Ides of June, unquote. Yep, Arthur Canute died at the wedding. He was taking a drink, had some kind of tremendous spasm, collapsed and never recovered. It is worth pointing out here that I have read from some historians about just how bitchy 11th century monks could be. You see, you see that comment that he could not speak afterwards? Well, do you know what that also means from a clerical point of view? It means that the king could not proclaim his last confession. He could not ask God for absolution for his sins. Or put more simply, when the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, and he spoke not a word afterwards, unquote, it could well be an accurate account of his medical condition, or it could be some monk politely and slyly saying, Arthur Canute burns in hell. But you notice he dies at this wedding, and no one says poison. So maybe this is the family defect coming up again that had killed his brother and others. But unlike his father and brother Harold, there's no trace of an illness in any record beforehand. With Canute and Harold, we have hints they were poorly before they died. But with Arthur Canute, nothing. He just falls over, which does make many people suspect he was poisoned. And then asks, if so, who was to benefit from this? Well, yes, Edward Aetherling, definitely. Godwin of Wessex, probably. But at this point, you can honestly say there were a hell of a lot of suspects who were happy he died. And perhaps the only two in this whole scenario who weren't happy he died, Osgood Clapper and Tovey Pruder. And actually, being technical about it, they were probably just less suspect than the others. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is quite sanguine about Harthur Canute's death. Quote, he was king over all England two years, wanting ten days, and he's buried in Oldminster at Winchester with King Canute, his father. And before he was buried, all people chose Edward for king at London, unquote. In June 1042, the long and winding story took an unexpected twist. The House of Wessex was restored to the throne. Edward son of King Ethelred, son of King Edgar, son of King Edmund, son of King Edward the Elder, son of Alfred the Great, was elevated in London to the position of King of England.
And with that, the extraordinary cycle of the Danish kings of England ends. There were only four of them. Sveen Forkbeard, Canute, Harold Hereford and Harthur Canute. But for a brief moment they tantalised us with the idea that England could have become a Scandinavian nation. And they also offer us an end of a cycle that started all the way back in chapter 8 of the story of London. For over 30 chapters, the Vikings have been tagged as part of this story. For 30 episodes, the Vikings have been here, always contributing to the story of London. They've terrorised it, they've besieged it, they've traded with it, they've ignored it, they've attacked it, they've plundered it, they've been defeated by it. They've occupied it, and they have ultimately become part of it. Way back when, during the reign of Offa the Great, the King of Mercia, I described how the residents of Londonwick, the old Mercian version of London, to them the Vikings had probably not seemed so bad. They'd traded with them, they'd emulated their haircuts, they'd discreetly arranged hostage negotiations because they knew a guy who knew a guy. And here we are, over two centuries later, and what do we see? We see two men of Viking ancestry and stock, celebrating one marrying the daughter of another. During that ceremony, a king dies and another king seamlessly gains power and changes the whole narrative of the nation. But these Scandinavians are part and parcel of the land. But that wedding in Lambeth, revealed to us one salient fact, that London was now a place with the national and the local mixed, where something as simple as a single wedding in a small hamlet called Lambeth could change the destiny of a nation forever. However, that observation is informed by hindsight. At the time, sure, the death of a king was big news, but it wasn't like the end of the world or anything. I mean, consider what happened to the bride and groom. I mean, Tovi Pruder, he did well under the regime of Edward and ended up, we think, being given a large chunk of land on the Welsh borders to rule and to prevent the Welsh from getting uppity into. In the years ahead of him, apparently him and his wife were to set up a shrine and it was to become a minor pilgrimage centre, which earned him quite a bit of fame. As for Osgood Clapper, well, he also hung around and became part of the new regime under Edward. And he did this for a few years. But then we think in response to being passed over by a younger noble for some promotion, Osgood Clapper actually rebelled against Edward, ended up being exiled in Flanders, conducted pirate raids for years, and we're not too sure he may or may not have become reconciled and then died peacefully in his bed. So ultimately, for the people at the wedding and for the people in England at the time, their stories carry on following their own trajectories. But now the clock had begun to tick for the fourth invasion of ships from Normandy to the south coast of England, and for the fate of one young boy, currently hiding out with his uncles or in peasant homes, hunted by powerful warriors and staying one jump ahead of death squads, William of Normandy was a very long way away from Lambeth right now, but its fate and his were now on track to meet. And I'm going to leave it there.
thank you for listening. I do so hope you enjoyed this episode. We're just sort of building up to what's going to be a rather large historical event coming up. There is a script available. You'll find the script on the website Imager, and there's a link to it in the description of this episode. If you wish, and if you can, you can support this little podcast of mine. It is entirely driven by an unhealthy, codependent relationship with coffee, so if you could help enable this needy part of my life, you can make a contribution at my Buy Me A Coffee account, with details again in the description of this podcast. If you don't want to indulge in my caffeine addiction, or you can't make a contribution, then that's no worries. Please, if you could, leave a five-star review or even a written review, as these things not only make a difference to the algorithms that drive the discoverability of this podcast, they actually are read by me, and they really do count. I have to personally thank uh, Vic Burton, Mark uh, Gribizu, and the awesomely named London Fishgoo for their glowing and wonderful reviews, which absolutely humbled me. And I also need to thank more distant listeners in the United States. Uh, Nurse 1921, PGB NYC, and above all, Mountain Spider Girl. Again, your reviews utterly blew me away and deeply touched me. These kind words, they really do make doing this worthwhile. Thank you so much. I will be back again next week for episode 40 of the story, and we get into the events of the reign of Edward the Confessor. London was about to move up a gear as the centre of England, and the medieval city we would come to know in the future is about to emerge fully for the first time. Much is coming. I'm looking forward to sharing the journey with you. See you then. Bye.